For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. Okay. Thanks. It was great. It's just really weird not doing that and doing this. It's, it's fun. Uh, Holy Cross kids, so this is your time to leave the room. Um, <laughs> just, I'm just kidding. If you want to stay, it's fine. But we do have a special um, sort of uh, age-appropriate time for kids ages 3 to pre-K to go into the back. And so Mrs. Gilmart is in his back there. And special day, this is my daughter's first day serving in that. She's 11, and uh, so she was kind of excited uh, to be able to do that. Okay, well, here we go. For the rest of us, grab your Bibles, if you would, and uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that's in the New Testament, if you're new to Christianity and this Jesus thing. It's towards the back of the Bible, just split it in half, take a right, and you've got, you'll see little headings on the top there. So there's the book of Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. Got a little number one, Corinthians. Great. And if you don't have a Bible, like I said earlier, uh, there's some on the back table. They look like this. It's our gift to you, so please take one. Um, And the passage is also printed in your bulletins, so you can cheat and and look there as well. All right. Uh, This is the last week, like I said earlier, this is the last week in our series that we've entitled, uh, I Believe, where we've been unpacking and working through the Apostles' Creed. And if you've been with us any amount of time, we use that at least a couple times a month to help us unpack um, and work out the gospel in our hearts and minds and find meaning in our life in a little way that we can just kind of remember and and speak that to one another and to the world. And so uh, today we're looking at what Paul, Paul was the writer of Corinthians, and uh, we'll get a little bit backstory on him in a second. But we're looking at verses 50 to 58 in chapter 15 of the book. So stand with me if you would. Sort of our practice and custom to stand at the reading of God's word. And we're going to look at what it means to be a community of hope and a community of restoration as we live into the reality and the resurrection of the life everlasting. Uh, listen, this is God's word. This is not my word. You wouldn't need my word. You need God's word. And so God's word is true. It's life-giving. And it's our only rule and authority of, in life. Okay, here we go. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to come today, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would just speak into our hearts, into our minds, that you would transform us. That you would illuminate our souls with the power of your gospel, for it is truly good news. Do this so that we can all lean into the freedom that we have and the hope that we have through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Let none of us leave here unchanged. Give me strength to speak your words of truth. I'm weak and I'm in need of your grace and your mercy. And so we ask all these things in the great and holy name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right. As I said, we're ending our series in the Apostles' Creed on the phrase, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so today we're going to use these couple of verses in 1 Corinthians uh, to remind us of the foundation of our Christian hope. That there will be a physical, bodily resurrection for those who turn from sin to Jesus. And those who believe and trust in Christ alone will be raised to everlasting life. Now, a little context on the book of 1 Corinthians because we're jumping into this book. Paul. He's the writer of it. Talked about that earlier. Uh, Think of him this way. He hated Christians, killed them, and was rabidly opposed to anything that the Christians were doing in the early church. And then he's walking on a road one day, and he has this amazing, mysterious encounter with the living God. And he's blinded, and he's sent away. He gets taught for a while. And rests, learns, scales fall off of his eyes and his heart, and he's sent out. This was a guy who hated Christians and killed them, and now is saying all the things that we just read uh, right there. So fairly transformative and powerful. And so now he's coming into the end of his book, jumping into the main body of, of his first letter to the church in Corinth. And throughout the whole book of Corinthians, if you know anything about it, He's sort of laid out problems that he's heard of, questions that the people in the church have been asking around town. And consistently, he sought to reshape all these questions that he's heard and the problems that people have been raising. And ultimately, he sought to reshape the church in Corinth and us all these years later around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so in chapter 15, we find the last words from Paul. Uh, coming, and he's sort of a legal guy, so when he runs out of things, he's very, very logical and, and, and thoughtful in his discourse to the church in Corinth. And he's basically setting up the centrality of the, of the resurrection of the dead. And so all that the people in Corinth have been sitting and, and listening and struggling with uh, before this chapter and all those 15 chapters before that are bound up in their misunderstanding of the resurrection of the life and the life everlasting. 
And so Paul calls them to live in hope. And so he wants them to be a community of hope uh, that lives in light of something that they do not see today. So imagine with me, if you would, sort of suspend reality for a second. Imagine with me, if you would, that you discovered very soon that the force of gravity on Earth was going to increase by a factor that would roughly double everybody's body weight. It's like, it's freaky just to think about. I'm doubling my body weight already and, 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 uh, and there's no increase in gravity. Uh, but the proof was compelling enough um, that even though it struck against all the common sense that you've been raised with and your 12th grade physics class was like, class was like this, this can't happen, you decided, I need to prepare. I've got to do something. And so you began wearing weights around your shoulders, around your waist, and to slowly kind of get your body more and more accustomed to weighing more. And you also realize, well, I can't just do this for me. I've got to reinforce my house. I've got to do something to its foundation. I've got to weigh it down the structure so that it remains standing because I've got to have a place to live. And then you decided, well, I have a car, and that's going to that's gonna be messed up, so I better add a bunch of weights to that. And so it looks really silly because now you're driving around in something that's like raised up because of all the weights. But you did it anyway and you drive around and you're happy. Um, the problem is this. You're doing all this crazy stuff. And the people around you, heck, even your family and your friends, people close to you, they didn't believe your evidence. You had evidence, but they didn't believe it at all. And so they began to make fun of you. They mocked you. And your new lifestyle was really hampering your ability to do life in the current gravity level. And let's be honest, it would be really hard to type and post on Facebook if you had weighted gloves, right? Although I would encourage you, maybe, maybe you should do that as a way to stop posting so much. But that, that's a different thing. It would just be hard. It would be hard. Uh, and so the only thing that got you through it, even though you had occasional doubts, we all have doubts, was the knowledge... This is what got you through it. The knowledge that a new reality was coming. And that you were simply living in light of that reality. This, I suggest, is what hope is. Hope is not wishful thinking, annoyingly rabid optimism, or even Pollyanna naivete. It's not even a a feeling per se. Hope is living patiently in light of something that you are certain is coming. And what is more, I would suggest that everyone, you and me, everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everybody in the world, is living in light of a reality that they think is coming. And some people work that out through annihilation, reincarnation, or some kind of disembodied bliss, whatever. But everyone has a hope. And what you hope in shapes everything in your life. Did you hear that? What you hope in shapes everything in your life. It's the engine that pushes you. It shapes everything. Whether that's money, success, relationships, a political party, or even your own health. Listen, these hopes are not bad, right? It's good to want to have a healthy marriage or healthy friendships. It's good to be able to provide for your family and for yourself. But these hopes cannot be ultimate. Because what you hope in shapes everything. All right, think about that. Now, Paul's point this morning, though, is that Christianity shapes us around a particular and ultimate hope. One 
that should be reflected in the life of the Christian and the life of the church. And so we're going to look at this passage in three ways. The object of hope, the outworking of hope, and finally being formed by hope. All right, here we go. Let's begin by looking at the object of hope. Paul first talks of living in a new world. Look, look down at verses 50 to 53. He says this. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor can the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now stop there. This is really important. We're tempted to think that Paul is saying that physicality cannot inherit the kingdom of God, that the new world that God is creating will have no place for real bodies, real physical bodies. But that isn't what he's saying. And several weeks ago, if you were here, Rick had talked about Christ having been risen from the grave. And he talked about Jesus being the first fruit of a second resurrection that would come, and that's you and me. And so I won't spend much time Uh, on this particular point. But we need to look at what Paul says to kind of lay a foundation for the object of our hope. A few verses earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 44, um, he says a few things. And and I really encourage you to to read chapter 15. In preparing for this, it was great. Because most of, of the chapter deals with the bodily resurrection of the saints. And so, read it. And in fact, um, I encourage you, when you gather in your small groups this week, or when you're hanging out with your friends at a bar or the coffee shop, talk about and consider the bodily resurrection of, of, of the Christian, of us, of people, uh, out, of, out of 1 Corinthians 15. And see what Paul has to say. But, but here in verse 42, he says this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. And you see the connection to what he, what he said a few verses later. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, this is where we can, we can misunderstand things. So don't misunderstand that spiritual body language. He's not saying you're a ghost, Rather, he's, he, he's saying that there's a physical body that is more like the resurrected body of Jesus. It's a physical body. It's not that you're ethereal and that you're floating around in air. Uh, you have a physical body, just like our resurrected King Jesus, who reigns right now in a real physical body. And if there is a natural body, Paul is saying there's also a spiritual body. Okay? Let me make a quick point here. What we're talking about when we're talking about Christian hope and the bodily resurrection, is we're talking about resurrection and not reviving of our old self, this body. We're not reviving this body. Does that make sense? We're we're talking about resurrection, not reviving. And so let me tell you why that's such a big deal. I think think it's foundational for this whole, whole piece. There is coming a day, and I don't know where you are on the, on the spectrum of life, but there is coming a day when your body, this body, has full-on betrayed you. And you don't want to be alive anymore. And you certainly get frustrated having woken up in the morning. For most of us, that's off our radar, right? We're a fairly young uh, congregation here. We're, we're either on the ascent, right? The cruising altitude, we're just starting to, to descend. But the Bible... Is really clear. And that's one of the things that I love about the Bible because it speaks to our humanity in real life. It doesn't just give you little platitudes 
and then say, go on and figure it out. It talks about real life, our real struggles with the fact that our bodies age. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12 really speaks to that. And uh, I think it's really cool. Um, if, if I had to guess, though, there, there are probably uh, days like that that you guys have already had, regardless of your age, and, unless you're like 10 and you're like, Mom, what, what is he talking about? Life's really cool. Uh, but most of us had, have had days where we're sick, and it's just been an awful experience, and we'd be fine to go home to glory. Here's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. I, I, this is hilarious and, and, and kind of cool, too. Anyway, uh, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Meaning, I have no pleasure being alive. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease. Here's what I need you to do. Ecclesiastes were reading poetry, so it's like, this sounds really weird. I understand. It may be hard to see. But he's saying your teeth are gone. Your hands are going to tremble. You're not able to do things. Heck, I'm 40, and I know that like, it, things just a little slows down a little bit, and particularly in the thickening of here. Right? And you can't see. Some of us can't see without trifocal glasses. Okay? Our hope, our hope is not in being revived. That would be miserable. I don't want to come back to this failing body. We're talking about resurrection. I will not be raised from the grave in the power of Christ to, be, to a tweaked back and aching knees and, and needing to put my guard in at night so I don't grind my teeth down. Right? I don't get resurrected into being tired and weak and slow and weary and lonely and fearful. I'm not revived. I'm resurrected. And if you are in Christ, you're not going to be revived. You'll be resurrected. And so I have this hope and this ultimate hope that I will be bodily resurrected in a body that's not like this one. All kinds of ailments that one can face here on earth, all the fear, it's just going to be gone. It's just going to be gone because it will be unable to be killed, unable to die, and death will be dead. And this is where the Christian hope lies. Okay, I'm going to skip this because I feel like you get it, right? Bodily resurrection, it's going to happen. All right. Paul, let me jump back in to Paul uh, in Corinthians in chapter 15. We're going to pick up there. He's saying it isn't just the dead who need to be remade. That's where we're picking back up. It isn't just the dead who need to be remade, but also those who are currently living to be ready for the new world that God is making, to be ready for resurrection life will take all of us being made new. And this is what he fleshes out. In the next two verses, when he says this, I declare to you a mystery. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. When the scriptures talk about mysteries, often they're talking about God's surprising way of fulfilling his purposes. And in texts like this one, it means letting us in on what is coming. And so the word sleep is Paul's way of talking about Christians who die. Death for Paul is a state that implies a judgment for sin. A judgment that he argues was received for the Christian by Jesus. And thus Paul talks about Christians as sleeping since they will rise again. And Paul is saying the surprising element in this is that we won't all die, but all of us will be changed. 
And the way this will play out is in verses 52 to 53. Look there. Paul says, in a moment, in the blinking of an eye, in the sounding of the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Let's stop there. Paul is envisioning a process. Not a process, not a process, but an event. He's envisioning a great event, a gathering. When trumpets sound in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with that, it was to gather, it was to gather God's people in assembly. And Paul is envisioning here the ultimate assembly. The word last doesn't necessarily mean temporally, but it means ultimate. God's people will be gathered by the raising of the dead and the changing of those still here. For, he says, this perishable, those already dead, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal, those still living, must put on immortality. Listen, the point is this. The hope that Christianity has is not for a steady incline leading to a really nice place to live. The biblical version of us and our world is that we are all more broken than that. Right? We know that from our daily experience. For things to be the way that God intends them to be, everything must be changed, including us, including you and me. We have to be made suitable for God's new world, a world where our old enemies die. So look down at verse 54 and 55. Paul says, And when this perishable is clothed with the imperishable, and this mortal clothed with the immortal, then that which was written will come to be. Death is swallowed in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. And this is the culmination of the Christian hope. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Hold on. This only makes sense if you grasp what the problem is that Christianity is addressing. Because there is a problem. And the Bible teaches that the world wasn't always as it is now, and people weren't always as we are either. When God created the world, he created everything good. But humanity, who was created to be the stewards of his creation, we turned away from God. We betrayed him, and we desired instead to take his place. And when we did this, what the Bible calls sin, that fancy churchy word, what the Bible calls sin, we recognize that betrayal of God had catastrophic results on everything. And so humans then suddenly had a twofold problem, guilt and corruption. Now guilt in that our betrayal of God, seeking our independence rather than dependence on him, breaking the promise that we made to love him deserves justice and corruption in two ways. One, that our whole nature seems turned in on itself so that we continually multiply our betrayals of God day by day and that we are now subject to death. Now, death was the consequence in the garden, wasn't it, if you remember, that would come if we betrayed God, if Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they did eat it and we have done the same We're honest about ourselves every day since. And so death remains so long as guilt is outstanding. And Paul here, though, is envisioning a day when the dead are raised and those who are living are made such that they are no longer subject to death. 
In other words, he's envisioning a day in which death as a principle and a reality no longer applies. It goes away. There is no place for death in God's new world. Because it was not supposed to be in this present one. Death is an alien invader to creation and it's not a natural part of life. And so the Christian hope is for a world where death and guilt and futility and corruption and loneliness and pain no longer exist. And this is what the whole chapter of Corinthians here, chapter 15, has been about. That this is the great event that is still to come. It's our hope that it will come. This is the great event that had begun, but is not yet fully here. We call that the now and the not yet. It's not yet here. And it's also the great event that is an assured happening. So let's look at the outworking of hope. Because I, I think it's funny, like Paul is so certain that this is true for Christianity. And so he deals with it as he lays out the outworking of hope. Look down at verse 56, 57, as we see who holds the power. Paul says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. All right, so we're we'll stop there for a second. Let's just take a brief little bit of explaining. When Paul says sting, what I want you to think of is a scorpion. Have you ever seen one of the kind of ugly creatures? It's weird. Uh, but uh, they're dangerous, right? They're very, very dangerous because at the back end of their tail, there's this barb and zoop, it's going to inject you with venom and you could die. And lots of people have, I assume. Uh, that little ching is called its sting, right? And so Paul is saying that death is only dangerous because of sin. And so if you have no sin, if you have no guilt, then death can do nothing to you. Can't do anything to you. Unfortunately, and we know this from our own experience and from the Bible. It's very clear that we all betray God. We've all sinned. And so we do this every day. And Paul, and, and Rick just talked about it, uh, I think it was last week or the week before. He lays out, Paul, the same writer of Corinthians, lays out in the book of Romans where he says this. All have sinned, betrayed God, and fallen short of the glory of God. And so this is now why death has power over us all. Then Paul, kind of in classic Paul language, adds in this cryptic statement about the law. He says, the power of sin is the law. What the heck does that mean? It sounds like, what? You elbow the guy next to him. What does this mean? When Paul says the law, he means the law of God, as given in the Old Testament, right? So that's on the front part of the book if you're, if you're new to Christianity. And in there, in the Old Testament, God gave Moses the law. And what Paul is saying here, he works out in greater detail in Romans chapter 7. So read that later. But I'm simply going to summarize what he says. He says, uh, when you hear law in the Romans chapter 7 part, when you hear law, don't simply think, don't think a set of, of rules, though they are that. The law is given as God's self-revelation. And because we were made in the image of God, the law is to show us, the law is to show us what it means to live as humans. In other words, we were created to love God and others, and the law shows us how to do that. It's the how part. It's not the why, it's the how part. Unfortunately, 
because we're all broken and, 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 and seek our own independence and betrayers of God, the law does not have the ability to actually empower us to do what it says, and so it ends up backfiring. We know this every day. We try to keep a list of rules. We break them. It backfires. And so on the one hand, it points out to us where we fail, where we sin. And on the other, because of our state of corruption, we hear what it says, and we want to do the opposite. In another way, we stand under the consequences as it lays out for not following it. So it just gets us coming and going. It's kind of rough. And so then the law, which was meant, it was intended to be a good thing because of our sin, ends up only making the problem worse. The problem is that death is present because of sin, and the power it draws from the law is for our downfall. So how is it that Paul then can boast to death, where is your sting? He's like, come on, buddy, where's your sting? You ain't got nothing. Look at, look at 57. Paul says this. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. This is why Paul can be so certain that the problem is answered. That the hope is sure and the sting of death is removed because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the New Testament in particular teaches that Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived. Perfectly loving God and loving others. And that he loved us to the fullest by bearing our guilt. The guilt of our sin by bearing the weight of God's judgment against sin that was rightly due us on the cross. And he dealt with our guilt there. And then he didn't just leave it there, otherwise we'd have no hope. He rose again to deal with our corruption. Dealt with our guilt on the cross And his rising again from the dead deals with our corruption. And it's the beginning of God's new world. Being clothed imperishable. So where is death's sting? The power of guilt? It's buried in the chest of Jesus. There can be no new world without this. There can be no perfect human civilization apart from dealing with our sin. There can be no stopping of death without its power being drained. Jesus bore our sin. He took every last ounce of judgment to himself. Judgment for every one of our evil thoughts. Every selfish deed we've ever done. Everything you and I hope no one will ever know about. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other guru, or no guru, no other, just no guru, uh, can offer you what Jesus can. Freedom from your guilt. And rules won't eliminate what you've done. And denial, if we're honest, is weak. Weak at best. But thanks be to God who actually gives us the victory. Gives us. Not will give, but gives us and does so now through relationship with Jesus. And finally, Paul helps us to work it out. If this is the case, if this is what we think is coming to those who lay their trust in Jesus then how do we hope now? How do we live in light of that reality? And Paul lays it out for us in verse 58. He says, So then, my dear brothers, dear brothers, here is tenderness, my dear brothers, become steadfast and immovable, abounding always in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord 
your work is not in vain. That word we translate steadfast in the Old Testament is used to communicate a constancy through historical flux. Not a flux capacitor from Back to the Future, but flux, right? Staying focused even through the change of circumstances. And this means staying firm, knowing that in Christ, you will outlast the forces against you. You will outlast the forces against you. And this language of abounding in the work of the Lord means overflowing, giving yourself over completely to the Lord's work. Listen to me, because we can really misunderstand here. This does not mean the Christian life is for professional Christians, preaching and vocational ministry and director of worship. It doesn't mean that necessarily. It is that, or being a missionary in New Guinea. Uh, Good work, but it's not exclusive work for them. It means doing work, living life in a way that further God's purposes, expands his kingdom everywhere in the world. And so it means living and working while being governed by love of God and love of neighbor and not living and working by self-preservation or self-promotion. And this can be done, this is the beauty of this thing, it can be done no matter what your calling is in life. Whether you're a student, you're a farmer, you're a stay-at-home mom, you're a nurse, you're a business person, you're a teacher, you're a police officer, you're a politician even. The comfort in this is that Paul says, our labors is not in this way, are not in vain. And so the word vain echoes of the futility that comes from death that he just talked about. What Paul is saying is that what we do here in the Lord will last into God's new world. Your work that we do now is not in vain. It is not useless. It's not pointless because it will not just all go away. Some of it will last. Something of it will last if it's in the Lord is what he's saying. All right, let's look at, look at being formed by hope. Being formed by hope. I want to draw our attention to two points of application. And then you can go have food and watch football. Um, no, just kidding, sorry. <laughs> uh, two points of application, if I can. Because we, be, we need to be formed by this hope this morning, right? I need to be formed by this hope. If nothing else, I'm preaching to myself. I need to be formed by this. Uh, The first is locating our hope. A hope is living in light of what we believe is coming for us, right? We talked about that. And so we hope in a Savior. But that really begs the question, what kind of Savior? What are we looking towards to get us out of this life of futility, guilt, alienation, and death? Where are you placing your ultimate hope this morning? Where am I placing my ultimate hope this morning? What do you think will take away your feelings of powerlessness or loneliness or guilt? And if you're honest, maybe for some of you it's power. Power. That if you can just gain enough influence and shape life the way you want, you're going to be okay. Maybe you're looking at relationships. If I only had a spouse or a different spouse or a child or a different child, or successful children. Maybe you're looking towards success. If I can be the best, the one everybody looks up to, 
Maybe it's your reputation. If I can be known as good or loving or cool or the good friend. Maybe it's self-gratification. If I can just have what I want when I want it, like Burger King. Whether that's food or sex or stuff. Maybe it's making up for your own failures through social action and moral effort. Can I tell you, quite honestly, from my own experience and from the Word of God, that these things, these ways of looking at life all presuppose that this is all there is. If that's true, you might as well do what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in another part. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because these things do not take away our guilt. They do not ward off death. At best, they anesthetize us. At best. Because you and I are broken. We do fail. And we are guilty before God. And no amount of relationship or success or sex will take that away. Jesus and Jesus alone is God's answer for our problems. He is our hope and our Savior. In Him, your guilt can be taken away and your future can be secured. Secured, not made available, but secured. And so I tell you today clearly, find your hope and salvation in Jesus alone. He will not disappoint. Lastly, we need to be living, living in our hope now. And Paul tells the church in Corinth that living in their hope will look like always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, it will look like giving yourself fully to it and pouring yourself out in generous liberality. And that is the grammar, is the grammar of the Christian life. Over and over again, we are told that we are a people who are to completely give ourselves both to God and to others, to freely give ourselves to God and to other people. The problem is we don't give ourselves fully to anything because we're afraid, right? We're afraid that it will disappoint us. And so if you're like me, you're terrified of being disappointed. Terrified. And so you keep one foot, one foot in the hope of a world made new and one in the world of hedging our bets, of keeping ourselves safe. And I won't tell someone that I enjoy them in case they don't return the sentiment. Or I won't give all that I have to this project in case I fail. Or I won't reveal all of myself to this person because they might reject me. Or I won't allow myself to believe that God actually loves me in case it's all a big cosmic joke and I look foolish. It's easier, listen, particularly in in Christian circles... um, and even for those of us in vocational ministry, it's really easy to look like I'm busy for God. It's great to be busy for God. But I'm not, if we're honest, and maybe you're not, you're not actually giving ourselves fully to God and to others. We're just busy. And so we have reasons for thinking this. People, I, I recognize this. This is, this is, people have done this to me. People have failed us, right? People fail us. They've disappointed us. Some people here have been sinned against grievously. We need to mourn with them as God's people, not distance them. They've been sinned against. We've sinned against others. We know what it means to be betrayed and to betray. 
And so you will never be able to be a person, though, who abounds, who gives themselves fully to God and to others apart from the gospel. That's the point of this whole message that that Paul was bringing us. And so long as you believe that you have to provide for yourself, get life for yourself, you can never give yourself fully away. But, But if you know that in Christ God has given himself fully for you, for me, for all of our needs, for all of our failures, for all of our longings, then there's nothing you can't give away. There's nothing you can't give away. Because you can't outgive God. You can't outgive Him. He owns everything. You, you can't outgive Him. And so the gospel of Jesus frees us to be a people who give witness to a world that is coming, a world in which people live as they were created to live giving of themselves fully and freely to God and to others. And it does this because in Jesus we see that our hope has been secured and that our guilt has been paid for, that our relationship to God is healed, that our fullness is found not in what we do, but in what Jesus has done for us. And what's more, we can give ourselves fully and freely to our labors, both in our work and our relationships, because we know That whatever is done in the Lord is not in vain. In some way, even if in a transformed way, like our new resurrected bodies, it will last. It will last into God's new world. We are called to be a people who, like the person preparing for gravity to increase, live in light of a world that is coming. A world where love and not selfishness rules. Where God is present, where death is defeated, and where sin is a distant memory. And where we are what we were meant to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these men, these women, these children. Thank you for the opportunity to just let the word of God do what it does. Change people. And so I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you might stir up in our hearts now what needs to be stirred up for life change. Father, we thank you and praise you for the coming resurrection. That there's a day coming when our bodies don't hurt, where we don't cry, where the fight to forgive, the fight to heal, and the wrestle over doubt all gives way. And we get to rest in that final, it is done. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would give us insight. Where is our ultimate hope? Where have we placed our ultimate hope? Spirit, it's easy to get lost in ourselves. Will you bring clarity to us this week? Father, where there are those around us who either because of a lack of courage or a lack of thinking well have not engaged with the good news of the gospel, we have not prayed for them. We have not invited them into our homes for dinner, into our church, into our small groups, and into conversations about you Will you convict our hearts? Will you prick our souls with the weight of eternity? Help us now as we confess and consider your goodness and grace to us in Jesus. We thank you, even in the ugliness of our hearts, that you love us. And your love for us has not wavered in our foolishness. We love you. Help us, we pray. Amen.